You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. How much do you know about your health that you didn't know a decade ago? And I don't mean in terms of how are you feeling or are you getting over a cold? You have allergies? No. I mean, specifically, what do you know? How many steps did you take yesterday? What was your resting heart rate while you were taking them? What about as you slept last night? How long did you sleep last night? How much of that was REM sleep? You might not know all these things yourself, but a lot of us do. This is all thanks, of course, to connected wearable devices like Fitbits, Apple Watches, Oura Rings. But is knowing that good for us? Does it help us make better decisions? Do I need to worry because my heart rate was racing while I slept for a few minutes in the middle of the night? What if my VO2 max is down? If your blood oxygen's a little low, should you call your doctor? How much about ourselves and our lives do we really need to quantify in detail? And what do we gain and lose when we do it? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is Interconnected on The Big Story, Part 3, The Quantified Self. Natasha Schull is a cultural anthropologist and an associate professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University. Her second book, Keeping Track, explores the relationship between an individual self and personal data by looking at the advance of digital data-gathering techniques like, you guessed it, wearable fitness devices. Hello, Natasha. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for joining us today. No problem. Just to give our listeners some context, maybe can you explain what is the quantified self movement? First of all, the quantified self group does not like to be called movement. Really? Yes, they're they're a community. They hold fiercely to that characterization rather than movement, which has more the thrust of a trend or something political. Hmm. They're a collective or a community of individuals who come together to share with each other following a very simple formula. They get together and they share what's called show and tells with each other. And in the show and tells, they answer three questions. What did I track? How did I track it? And what did I learn? And some people use pen and paper. Some people use photographs. The majority of people in the quantified self do use some kind of quantitative metric to track uh, one or more variables. Um, It's a little different than people who sort of track to build up an archive of memories because it's usually goal-oriented. You want to figure something out about yourself with the aid of whether it's wearable devices or certain kinds of data that you gather and track. So you might want to understand whether your symptoms that you experience have to do with a change in your diet or breaking up with your boyfriend or switching you know, where you park in the morning when you go to work, things like this. It can be incredibly mundane. It can also seem far more significant, like tracking your Parkinson's symptoms and 
really anything under the sun that you can think of. You mentioned some health stuff there, but you also mentioned uh, a number of things that that may not have to do with at least the typical stuff that I, I think our listeners think of when we talk about wearables. So how new is this community? Is, does it predate the Aura Rings, Fitbits, etc.? I would say that if, if you want to be really broad about what the quantified self group is doing, right? And human beings seeking self-knowledge by tracking themselves, you can go way back to the ancient Greeks. You know, you can find so many instances of keeping track and logging. We have Benjamin Franklin, who had a special little tablet that he used with 13 variables that he would track, including his sleep and his alcohol consumption and meat and how honest he was, how modest he was. So people have long used technology, quote unquote, in that case, a tablet and a pencil and a system to track themselves. But with the rise of digital technology, personal computing and the mobile phone, especially, I I believe, the the 2007 version, that really was a watershed um, for this kind of thing. Why? Because it was suddenly at our fingertips, stuff that you formerly had to do in a laboratory with a team of scientists over a great period of time could be done by pulling your phone out of your pocket, opening an app and setting it to go. All of a sudden we can be the the sort of scientists of ourselves in a way. And so you saw uh, a group of people, uh, some of them had connections to Wired Magazine, Kevin Kelly and Gary Wolf among them, who were considered the two founders of the group. And they met in the living room of Kevin Kelly in San Francisco, 2008, I believe. And that was really the first meeting of what would become the quantified self community. And then it really just took off. You know, it was very, very organic ground up kind of a growth to the, to the quantified self community. It popped up in different cities abroad and around the states, usually attracting educated, white men, right? Mm -hmm. But certainly not to the exclusion of um, women, other races and cultures, etc. But it does tend to fit that, (laughs) that stereotype of the geek, right? The geek who is super motivated and tracking themselves. Early adopters, I believe we call them. That's, that's one way to call them. Yep. It's become commonplace for for some people, at least, to, as you put it, you know, keep tabs on some mundane things. I want to know if I'm hitting my steps or if my heart rate is going up or down or, or whatever. Every time we talk about a kind of technology, there's always people pushing it further and further. What does the cutting edge technology of the quantified self-community look like? You know, the quantified self-community, I wouldn't say that it has a cutting edge sort of trend to it because the mo- some of the most elegant, beautiful, meaningful, and revealing tracking projects can be done using tools we've had around for a long time. In fact, there's a real appreciation for simplicity. I think what you're talking about is more when the so-called entrepreneurs start showing up and they may not be there to share their own data and learn about themselves, but they want to take this formula to market. And so part of what I did in my research was after I had attended quantified self meetings for a while, I then started following the entrepreneurs 
to their trade shows, like the annual consumer electronics show. And there you see these kind of cutting edge visions that are, again, very often profit driven. What do those look like? Well, it really depends what kind of tracking you're talking about. Like, are you talking about attention tracking? In that case, you might find, you know, things that have first percolated at the MIT Media Lab, a pair of glasses that is also a brain interface that will buzz on your head when it senses algorithmically that you have ceased to pay attention in class or while you're driving. Then you can imagine the different applications that could be brought into factories or used by students. It can just be a simple wristwatch, right, that buzzes you at different times to remind you to move, as many of these gadgets do. So really, it's hard to say that this whole space we're talking about is one thing. There are actually very con- some contradictory logics at play. It's all so new. You know, you may have gadgets sitting next to each other on the shelves of some big box store, and they're both falling under quantified self or self-tracking, but they're actually operating with very different understandings of like what's the role of the person or the technology. So I've just been wandering around in that domain trying to make sense of it all. And what I have found is that as quantified self has moved out of this very geeky domain of quantified self, and I don't say that in a negative way, but people who are really motivated to um, persistently gather knowledge about themselves so as to affect some kind of insight or self-transformation, which is certainly a good thing, but not everybody can stick with that. So as people started taking that formula to market, it didn't always work. And so every year when I went back to the next consumer electronics show, I would find like new data was in showing like people are just putting these things away in the drawer. They're not using them. So ironically, we've seen a dequantification. Like if I was to characterize the general trend of the market in the kinds of gadgets that have emerged out of quantified self spirit. One of the things I've seen is a de-quantification and the way that this growing industry and wearable technology is reacting to that consumer sentiment. Like I am just overloaded with data. And I understand that. I can drill down into my data in certain moments, but a lot of the time the idea of doing it every day depletes me. And I would just like something to be helping me in the background, whether it's buzzing me and saying, oh, um, you know, you've, you've, you've got to go pick up your daughter now. It's time to drink water. One of the problems that you run into if you're trying to monetize the quantified self formula is that it might be that the best way to go about things is to have an insight and learn something and then move on with your life. Or maybe you engage in a certain tracking practice once a month or once a year when you need a refresher. And the rest of the time you don't, right? You put it aside. However, (laughs) what these companies have to do, that doesn't work for them. That's not a good monetization formula. That even if it works best by being intermittent or happening as a sort of short module that you put away the rest of the time, they, they can't do that, right? They've got to also create a technology that is always on. So this always on kind of mentality, I call it like data for life, like the idea that you need to be exhaustively capturing data all the time. And it's, I, th- I feel like in many ways, 
that too is a formula for failure because I think that always on imperative can exhaust people, right? Um, so they both want you to wear it all the time, but then wearing it all the time, charging it all the time, focusing on it gets to be a drag for people. And then they just put it away altogether. So I do think that, you know, we're, gonna, we're going to see new iterations of tracking um, devices that maybe are a little bit more episodic or as needed rather than always on, which is a challenge. What kind of opportunities are there, especially in a field like healthcare, which, you know, 10 years ago, if we went to our doctors, we would be describing symptoms that we had and, you know, what we think may have preceded them or may not have, and the doctor would take your vitals in that moment. You know, now, depending on if and what tech you're using, you can go to the doctor and, you know, here's my heart rate and exercise for the last three months. Uh, what's the next step to that and what opportunities does it create? Well, I mean, you ask what's the next step to that, but I don't know that the medical system is even quite on board with that yet. You know, a lot of medical people go to these conferences and I talk and interview them and they're not all that pleased with this craze in self-tracking. They see a lot of it as inaccurate and they are correct that a lot of this has yet to gain the kind of accuracy that a medical grade, far more expensive device would have. We, we do see some advances where um, you know, consumer grade devices are shockingly accurate, but even then doctors are a little bit annoyed by it. They're annoyed by patients coming to them and bringing their data and their Excel spreadsheets. There's, there's a sort of like medical industry eye roll, like, oh, stop bothering me with your data and let me just be your doctor. And I think a lot of that is unfair, that there, there actually can be really important things that one detects um, on their own kind of detective hunt to, to, to resolve symptoms or notice things. How reliable is the data that we get from our Apple Watches and Fitbits? You know, now the one I have on my wrist right now can claim to measure my blood oxygen level, which, you know, obviously can be a sign of uh, COVID if I have it. And there was a lot of this during the pandemic. You say doctors are skeptical. Do we know, do we know how accurate it is? That question assumes that we can make a blanket statement about all these things. And it's such a vast difference. So something like the Aura Ring has really honed it, its particular algorithms for things like, you know, resting heart rate, blood oxygen levels. And you, you saw a new kind of respect to some degree come during um, the COVID pandemic, which is still ongoing. And, and they had this sort of retroactive data to prove it. Look, it knew that I had COVID. The signal was there before I took the test. And then the test just confirmed it. The Aura Ring is not the only one. There's the Whoop and there, there, there's a whole range um, that can pick up on these things. But then you look at things like step trackers and many devices will be operating with quite different ways of measuring that, like using accelerometers um, and in relation to where you are in space and your distance. Some of them can't count steps going up. And often what they're measuring is a, is a sort of proxy. They're not actually measuring a step and another step and another step. How many steps should we be taking anyway? Is that even, is this 10,000 steps even accurate? It, it, it's quite random. I mean, there's a whole interesting history to that that I believe came out of an advertising campaign, but really there's nothing magical about 10,000 steps. In fact, there was recently a study 
that was done showing that the healthiest number of steps is maybe seven to 8,000 a day if you're going to go that route. There's ambiguity all around. I mean, some people would say that accuracy isn't the issue. These devices and modes of thinking about oneself just keep you tuned in, you know, that it's, it's sort of the journey, not the destination. It's being aware that wearing a ring or a wristwatch or even remembering to charge it compels you to be more self-attentive. Others would say that all this stuff, including, you know, GPS on our phones, is allowing us to no longer know how to read a map or orient ourselves and that we're actually losing our orientation to the world. So you've got sort of both, both ways of looking at it, which are radically different. One of the things we're really trying to answer um, as we look at these episodes is how are these things actually changing us and changing how we behave? And while I'm sure there have always been people who are, you know, utterly fascinated by tracking uh, with any means, you know, their day-to-day lives and, and changes in them, what is it doing to us to just have, you know, more data than we ever could have thought possible about the inner workings of our own bodies and fitness uh, than we ever had before? And again, when I go and look at the stats in my fitness trackers, there are always things that I'd never even considered and didn't realize it was tracking, like VO2 max. I have no idea if that's reliable, but now apparently I know what mine is and maybe I should be worried about it, you know? Uh, how does it How does it impact? us to have this level of data so readily available? So, you know, once again, I can give a kind of two-sided answer to that, that for some people, this is not the most healthy hyper-attention to oneself. You know, it, it's that sort of, we're all somewhere on a spectrum of hypochondria. And for those who are further along that spectrum, that this is just going to be, you know, people are going to be increasing their anxiety about themselves when they don't need to, right? And then for other people, it's going to reduce their anxiety. They put this thing on, they feel like something is taking care of them in some way, they're not obsessing over the numbers, and it, it, they have a different relationship to it. So once again, these, these machines don't come into humanity in a monolithic way. If anything, what they do is they expose the vast differences among us I am less concerned as a cultural anthropologist with what they are doing to us and whether they're accurate or not and those kinds of questions. I'm more interested in taking them as some kind of a signal or symptom, if you want to put it in those terms, of where we're at in our culture. And why at this moment are we all so eager to have this kind of help? Why are we all so eager to embrace the specific promises that this kind of quantifying wearable technology is offering us. And I think it has a lot to do, actually, with feeling really overwhelmed at this moment with all the technology that pervades our mundane everyday life in so many areas, especially we saw this in the pandemic, right, where we're living through our computers and our phones, but it was going on long before that. Running alongside this wearable technology phenomenon is this other phenomenon of um, attention, right? The, the attention economy, what is happening to our attention? Are we addicted? Are we addicted to technology? You know, this is another domain in which I've researched for years. And I can't help but see the two going together. 
on the one hand, you have technology that's being designed to capture and extract monetary value, your eyeballs, your click value. Then on the other hand, we have all this technology that's jumping in and saying, I'm going to help you regulate yourself better. I'm going to help you get up off the couch. Remember to drink water make phone calls, manage you, sleep well, all of these things that we're not doing so well right now, right? Like we've got some problems that we're wanting to address. And I feel like the problems are coming from technology and the fixes are coming from technology. And that's fascinating to me. This is going to sound like a slightly dystopian follow-up, but given the way these things proceed, um, can you see those two coming together? Like, your attention and your data is always the value you provide to these companies. Is there a world in which your data collected by your ring or your watch or your Fitbit is then used to say, hey, remind you, you're you're actually, you've eaten a little too much recently. Why don't you just have this smoothie for lunch? Or, oh, your blood sugar levels are dropping. Uh, here's the nearest McDonald's or whatever. Like every time your data is offered up to a company, there is usually eventually a corresponding use commercially. So this is where I would say there's a big distinction between what you might call the quantified self and everything that you just mentioned in your question. Quantified self is not about designing uh, one solution fits all for the mass market and making money. And they don't care if you use a pencil and a paper. In fact, a lot of the, the cutting edge there that you asked about are these simple one, one button um, trackers. So you just have it in your pocket. Every time you feel a tremor or a certain symptom, you just press that button in your pocket. And this is seen as very elegant and like the height of self-tracking in the quantified self community. Now, I don't think that you would see anyone building a big business plan out of that and taking it to the consumer electronics show and getting venture capital, et cetera. There, you know, the, the whole equation of self-tracking is so complicated by um, not only the capitalist imperative, but by data capitalism. The fact that, yes, all of these devices are also capturing data. And how is that going to be used, protected or not protected? It really is the kind of Wild West. And um, you can imagine all sorts of nefarious things going on. And you don't even need to imagine it because it happens and is happening all the time. So, you know, I don't know that all roads point to some ominous dystopian future. As I've tracked this sort of knowledge-seeking, self-transformational spirit out of quantified self-meetings um, into commercial spaces like Best Buy, where I would stand um, for hours interview people about what they were hoping to get from devices or people returning them and what what made them angry or frustrated about these things. Now, I'm a cultural anthropologist and I try to really tease out um, how people are experiencing these technologies as well as um, how they're being designed and producing these, these experiences. One can track tracking, so to speak, and see a shift away from devices that give you knowledge and insight and awareness and numbers, all that kind of thing, right? To devices that take care of you without you maybe having to be aware or do the work yourself. Um, I call this algorithmic care. 
and you can see it in so many different technologies. Um, the little the little buzzing nudges that we are given, um, you know, time to stretch your legs. Maybe you want to take a break. Oh, it's time to have some water. I always think of the happy fork, which um, is a fork, a smart fork that will buzz in your mouth. Um, the electronic fork tines will buzz on your teeth if you've taken a bite too quickly after the previous bite. There's also one that tracks your breathing and it will buzz you or vibrate on your body and buzz your phone. And it'll say, your, your breathing is really shallow and erratic. Try to take some deep breaths. So when you step back and look at all of that, it's breathing, stepping, um, bite, biting, you know, eating, <laughs> drinking. Those are things that infants are expected to master as part of becoming <laughs> a sort of creative, independent human being in the world, right? And it's so interesting to me that all of these frazzled, stressed out adults, and I am one of them, right? Like I, I find myself fantasizing about the promises that these things could offer me. Oh, maybe that would fix it all you know, if I had this kind of thing to remind me to drink water. And it's like, why can't I regulate myself in these basic bodily ways? And there's this sort of, so, so as a cultural anthropologist, I try to think about why is that? Why is it that everyone is, you know, finding that so challenging? That has a lot to do with other kinds of technologies that are saturating our lives. And I'm not sure that this will fix it. Um, I always think back to the work of D.W. Winnicott, who was a psychologist known for his work with children. And he argued that uh, what he called the good enough mother is a mother who, you know, at first she adapts to her infant in a way that anything they want is just right there seamlessly with no frictions. They don't even know where they begin and the mother ends, right? They're just sort of merged. But growing up is about introducing friction and introducing frustration. So you let the baby cry a little longer before you feed them. And what does that do? That, frust that space of friction and frustration allows a growing being to feel that they have their own boundaries, that they have needs, and then to learn how to, to, to sort of navigate the world to fill those needs. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. You learn about yourself, you grow. The thing that troubles me about the directions that a lot of the consumer grade tracking technologies are taking is that it's a direction uh, back to a kind of perfect mother who removes all friction and all frustration, like smart home gadgets that will warm the room before you get there just to how you like mm -hmm. it and smart playlists that senses your mood. And it's, it's sort of keeping you in this seamless bubble uh, where you don't experience frustration and friction. And I think what that removes is a lot of the awareness and possibly the anger and impetus to do something about it um, that would come if you just let it, let it you know, frustrate you. So, it, so there is some kind of opiate of the masses argument one could make about this. This is sort of a technological fix for technological issues of constant distraction, interruption, um, demands on our time, in our pockets, all around us, in front of our faces. And here comes this other set of technology saying, oh, keep doing that. I'll, I'll just regulate you in the background. So that would be my dystopic kind of narrative of how uh, wearable and quantified, quote unquote, quantified self technologies 
fit into uh, the predicaments of the day. Originally, when we began this conversation, I was going to close with like a sarcastic joking question about if we're seeing the first steps towards developing a race of cyborgs. We're not seeing that, but what you just described is like we're not actually replacing our body parts with robots and technology, but we are increasingly allowing our technology to use us like robots. So maybe it's not that uh, off basic question at all. I think all of these different technologies are serving a sentinel purpose. They are, uh, we are allocating to them, we're delegating to them the responsibility of being vigilant because we don't have the bandwidth to maintain that level of attention and vigilance amid all the pulls on our attention from other places, right? So if these represent some sort of cyborgs, they are cyborgs whose function you know, the prosthetic function they fill is to to watch and track us and wait for when we need to be reminded, you know, stretch your legs, call your mother, take a drink, time to go to bed. Natasha, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Natasha Schull of New York University. You can look for her second book. It's called Keeping Track. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Talk to us anytime via email. Hello at the Big Story Podcast. And of course, you can call us 416-935-5935. And you can tell us things like, what's the smallest number of steps you've ever taken in a day? If you're listening to this in a podcast player that lets you review us, please do so. If you're not, why not find one that does and say hello? Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.